God has a plan for all of your lives. Hear me say that, still paper shuffling. God has a plan for all of your lives. A mission, uh, a purpose, a calling, an intention, a goal. Like you can call it whatever you want to call it, it don't matter, but you were not created to simply indulge your own pleasures. You were made, every single one of you, you were made for so much more than that. The author and pastor Rick Warren says, you were made by God and for God, and until you understand that, your life will never make sense. Are you hearing me, church? You were made by God and for God, and until that kind of gets into your skull, your, your life, the way that you live, will never make sense. Now, there are many obstacles. Like if you, once you start to try to live out your calling, be the person that God has called you to be, you are going to encounter many obstacles. There will be shiny things, many of them that will vie for your attention. You, there'll be a lot of painful things that try to knock you off course, and we're going to talk about some of those uh, potential pitfalls in a couple of minutes. But before we do that, I want to say this right here. I would argue that for you to be the person that God wants you to be and for you to do the things that God wants you to do, it requires at least two things. Now, I'm not saying that these two things I'm about to share with you, I'm not saying they're the only things that are required. I'm sure there are a lot of things that I'm missing, but I am saying that I think these two things I'm about to share with you are vitally important if you ever want to be who God intends for you to be. And here they are. We're just getting right after it today. If you're a note taker, I got two of them. Here's the first one. In storms, you need to be able to remember the stories. In storms, you need to be able to remember the stories. And here's the second one. Even in crowds, you need to be able to hear God's voice. Even in crowds, you need to be able to recognize God's voice. So let me simplify that down. Narrow it down as simply as I possibly can. This is what I'm asking. This is what I'm saying. You need to do, you want to live out your purpose, live out your call. You got to remember the stories and you got to recognize the voice. You hear me? Remember the stories, recognize the voice. So what do I mean when I say that in the storms, you need to be able to remember the stories? In the year 2004, a lot of y'all will remember this, huge tsunami hit Southeast Asia. Huge storm. It killed around 230,000 people. That's how many people this one storm died. But there was one island that was right in the midst of the storm, an island called Simuyu. And on the island of Simuyu, only seven people died. Storm went over the whole island. Only seven people died. And here's why. Because on Simuyu, they had a narrative tradition in which the elders in the community, it was called Smong, S-M-O-N-G, in which the elders in the community would tell stories to the younger people, and they would use these stories to pass on the wisdom, like, over generations. And so in all of these Smong stories, every single one of them ended the same way. They all ended with the same warning, and here it was. This is how every one of their stories ended. They would say, if a strong tremor occurs, and if the sea withdraws soon after, 
run to the hills, for the sea will soon run ashore. That's how every one of these stories, they would tell all these stories, but they all ended with the same one. They say, if a strong tremor occurs, if the sea would draw soon after, run to the hills, for the sea will soon run ashore. So in Simulu, when the tsunami hit, and when they felt the ground beneath their feet tremble, and they watched the ocean recede out, they knew what they were supposed to do. And so almost all of them ran for the hills, and because of that, most of them were saved. Why? Because the stories had prepared them for the storms. The stories had prepared them for the storms. While most of Southeast Asia, most of Indonesia are focused on the storm that was coming, the people of Simulu remembered the stories. Ultimately, they remembered the wisdom of their elders, and they heeded that wisdom. They learned the lessons from them. Church, for about the last six weeks, Mark and I have been in a series called the Reunion Tour 2020 series where we've been looking at a lot of these really like classic uh, Old Testament stories. So uh, we've talked about Jonah and the well. We talked about Daniel in the lion's den. We talked, Mark talked last week about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these are awesome stories. But what I need you to understand today is we don't just share these stories with you because we think they are sentimental, but we share them with you because we think they are instrumental. We share with you the stories of God's faithfulness so that when you find yourself in the midst of the storm, you'll know where to run. We share these stories with you so that when you find yourself in the fire, you will know how to respond. Whenever the whole rest of the world is stuck and their gaze is captivated on the chaos and on the storms, we want you to be a people who remember these stories. We tell stories of God's compassion. We tell the stories of God's power. We tell the stories of God's rescue. And we pass them on from generation to generation because for many people, these stories will quite literally be the difference between life and death. Church, we will never be a people who do what God wants us to do if we don't talk about and remember all the things that God's already done. Like, we should read those stories and look at it, and there's a certain trajectory because he never changes where we should see, and it should move us, it should motivate us. The stories of the past, these Bible stories, should inform the way that we live our lives. I think for us, they should become like wells of living water. That whenever we need it, we can pick the book up, we can go back and we can look at these stories, and it's like dipping our bucket down into the well and pulling out some courage. Dipping our bucket down into the well and pulling out some hope. Dipping our bucket into the well and pulling out some mercy. Using Mark's words from last week because I thought they were really good. At Whitestone, I want us to be a, a people who have a faith that remembers. I want us to be a people who have a faith that remembers. A people who allow the wisdom passed on to us from past generations to affect how we respond to current situations. A people who not only remember these stories, but who tell these stories, and then ultimately who live out these stories. If you ever want to be a person who lives out your purpose, who lives out your call, I think in storms, you're going to need to be able to remember the stories. Y'all with me? Does that make sense? Here's the second one. 
even in crowds, you need to be able to hear God's voice. Even when you find yourself in crowds, you need to be able to recognize God's voice. So last week I watched uh, the movie Escape from Alcatraz with Clint Eastwood. Have any of y'all ever seen it? Yeah, it's an old movie. I think it came out in 1979. And um, it's movies based off of a true story, like Eastwood's character in it. His name is Frank Morris, and supposedly in the 1960s, uh, Frank Morris and a couple of guys known as the Anglin Brothers uh, escaped from Alcatraz, and so the movie is like a retelling of that story. But as I watched this movie, there was one part of the movie that really captured my attention. And for those of you who have seen it, I'm wondering if you will uh, remember it. But Eastwood, again, he's Frank Morris in the movie. He finds himself, he's in the prison at Alcatraz, and he's out on the yard, and he runs into this older man, and the older guy is painting. And uh, the older guy's name's Doc. And he walks up to Doc, and Doc's got, he's painting a self-portrait. So it's him, and it's an awesome-looking picture. But on this portrait, uh, he's painted a picture of himself, but down close to where his heart is, he's, he's painted a flower. I don't know why I think it's a chrysanthemum, but uh, he's painted a flower there. And so uh, Frank Morris asked him, he says, he says, Doc, what's the deal with the flower? Like, why did you put the, the flower there? And this is how Doc responded to him. He said, the flower represents what's on the inside. That is something in me that they can't lock up with bars or walls. He said, the reason I drew the flower is because the flower represents what's on the inside. That is something in me that they can't lock up with bars or walls. Now, church, immediately when I saw the picture of that flower and I heard Doc giving a description of why he drew it and what it meant to him, it made me think about the Holy Spirit. Like, I don't know how many of y'all realize this, but every person in the room who knows God by way of Jesus, you have the Holy Spirit inside of you. And the Holy Spirit is something in you that cannot be locked up with bars or walls. The Holy Spirit is an irresistible agent of change. Inside of all of you who know God, by way of Jesus, you have an internal voice with a direct line both to and from the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And what I'm trying to tell you today is, if you ever want to be the kind of person who does what God wants you to do, who lives out your purpose and your calling, you're going to have to become the kind of person who can recognize the voice, who can tell what the Spirit is saying to you, and that voice drowns out all the other voices. It's the only way. Now, one of my favorite things about the Holy Spirit is that it is incorruptible. Do you hear me? The Holy Spirit is incorruptible. And and what I mean by that is um, every other part of you, because you're human like I am, every other part of you is manipulatable. Every other part. Like this world can manipulate every other aspect of you. This world can manipulate your thoughts, can manipulate your affections. The world can serve to redirect your gaze, redirect your attention, but it can't touch the Spirit. The Holy Spirit is untouchable, which means, in my opinion, that would make it the one part of us that is 100% trustworthy. I mean, I don't know if you're like me, but the way it works for me is my brain has a tendency to sometimes overthink things, and my heart has a tendency to overfeel things. 
but the Holy Spirit is like the porridge in the baby bear's bowl in the Goldilocks story. It is just right. Like, it is perfect. It's, it's the one part of us that we can completely trust because it is connected deeply to us and it is connected deeply to God. And so we can trust the Spirit fully. The Holy Spirit for us is like the flower was to dock. Like it's the thing inside of us that nothing else can touch. It can't be locked up with bars and walls. And it's such a great gift that we have access to it. Now, let me share with you an important lesson that I think I've learned about the Spirit, okay? And I really hope that this makes, it's kind of an odd way to go about talking about this, but I, I really think this is going to resonate with somebody in the room, okay? So a lot of y'all know that I like to write poetry, and I, I'm not very good at it. I know that, but it's something that I enjoy doing because I think for me, it's like a, a healthy creative outlet. And so uh, I write, and then the only person that I will share everything that I write with is, is my wife. And so um, she's heard or seen pretty much every poem that I've ever written. And if you've been married for quite a while, then you know that even if your spouse, you know, even when your spouse is lying with their mouth, they can't lie with their eyes. So, like, whenever I read one of these to her and she's like, yeah, it's good, you know, like, I can see them, like, I look at her, I look at her eyes and I'm like, I know what that, I know what that means. And you, you probably need to know uh, about my wife that, I, like, I, I trust her opinion. I mean, I think she has good taste, obviously, you know? <laughs> and so when I share these poems with her, most of the time, like, if I share something with her and she's like, um, Brock, that's not good, then I'll scrap it. And if she says, I think that is pretty good, then I'll, I'll, think, I'll, I'll think, man, maybe, maybe I'm on to something there. But there have been times that I have shared something with her and uh, she has either with her mouth or with her eyes said, I don't really like that one. And yet once she said it, something in me rebelled against it. Like there was something inside of me that was like, no, I think, I think you might be wrong about this. Now it doesn't happen every time. If it happened every time, I think that would be pride. It's not pride. There's something inside of me that's like, no, that I think she's missing it. I think here you might, I think you might be on to something. Now for me, that is really a helpful analogy when it comes to talking about what it looks like for us to discern the Holy Spirit. Let's say you feel like you hear the Holy Spirit whisper to you, telling you that you're supposed to take some faith-filled risk. Like maybe you're supposed to go on some mission trip or go live a life on mission. Maybe you're supposed to uh, start a ministry or volunteer at some ministry. But for whatever, it's a, it's a huge thing that you feel like God is calling you to do. Then what I would recommend that you do is, is you take that information and you immediately take it to wise counsel. Like after you've prayed about it and after you feel like you've heard the call, take it to wise counsel. Go to people that you love, who you know love you, and who you also know love Jesus. Share it with them. And 90% of the time, whatever they tell you to do, do it. 90% of the time. So if you go and say, I feel like I'm being led to do this, and the people who love you and love Jesus, they give you the green light, then I'm saying 90% of the time, you do it. And if you go to them and they it's red light, they're like, stop, this is not for you, then I'm saying turn around and go the other way. But the other 10% of the time, occasionally, God is going to ask you to do things that don't make sense to your friend. Occasionally, God is going to ask you to do things that don't make sense 
to the crowds. Occasionally, you're going to go to seek wise counsel. They're going to give you a no, and then five years later, you're still not going to be able to let the thing go. The Holy Spirit, sometimes the Holy Spirit will set a fire in us that not even the crowds can squelch. And what I'm saying to you this morning, church, is that in those moments when the Holy Spirit just won't let you let go, choose the Spirit over the crowd. Do you hear me? In those moments, choose the Spirit over the crowd. Do not do it every time. If you do it every time, you're a narcissist. If you avoid wise counsel every time, that's pride. But sometimes in your life, when the Spirit just continues to hit and continues to rattle, it's necessary. It's necessary. I honestly believe that there are a lot of times, especially if you've been walking with Jesus for a long time, there are some times where it's like you walk with the crowd for a while, and you, people that love, people love you, and they help you, but then there are some moments where I really do think Jesus calls us to step out on our own a little bit. Because it's in those moments that we learn to trust, okay, my friends aren't with me, but he's with me, and that's all that matters. My friends may not be beside me, but, but God is with me, and I'm safe in that. I love this quote from Paul Scanlon. He says, greatness often looks like madness until it finds its context. Greatness often looks like madness until it finds its context. So, you want to live out your purpose. You want to live the call of God in your life, you got to remember the stories. You got to recognize the voice. This is at least two important pieces, I think. Now I want to call your attention to our story for the day. 1 Samuel chapter 14, we're going to look at seven verses. This story, as far as the Reunion Tour 2020 series goes, I don't think it's as well known a story as a lot of the ones that we've shared, but for some reason it's the one that I felt like uh, was, was stirring this week, is the one I felt like I was supposed to share. And in this story, what we're going to see is Jonathan and his armor bearer take a very courageous step in battle, in war, against the Philistines. And I think this story illustrates pretty well a lot of the concepts that we've already been talking about. So this is 1 Samuel 14, 1 through 7. Y'all got it? All right, this is what the text says. It says, one day, Jonathan, the son of Saul, said to the young man who carried his armor, come, let us go over to the Philistine garrison on the other side. But he did not tell his father. Saul was staying in the outskirts of Gibeah in the pomegranate cave at Migron. The people who were with him were about 600 men, including Ahijah, the son of Ahitub, Ichabod's brother, son of Phinehas, son of Eli, the priests of the Lord in Shiloh, wearing an ephod, and the people did not know that Jonathan had gone. Within the passes by which Jonathan sought to go over to the Philistine garrison, there was a rocky crag on the one side and a rocky crag on the other side. The name of the one was Bozes, and the name of the other, Sina. The one crag rose on the north in front of Michmash, the other on the south in front of Geba. Jonathan said to the young man who carried his armor, Come, let us go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. It may be that the Lord will work for us, for nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. And his armor bearer said to him, Do all that's in your heart. Do as you wish. Behold, I am with you, heart and soul. So, if you would, allow me to set the scene of this story for you a little bit. 
The Israelites had just won a pretty major and surprising victory against the Philistines. And Jonathan, who was Saul's son, had been really instrumental uh, in this victory. And the Bible says that the Philistines didn't take the loss very well. And so what they did is they went away and they regrouped and they came back with a bunch more troops. And they prepared again to attack Israel. The text says that the Philistines came at this time with 30,000 chariots, 6,000 horsemen, and troops that numbered the sand on the seashore. It was a massive army. And what happened, most of the Israelite army, when they were able to look out and they saw the full size of the Philistine garrison, a lot of them went into hiding. They hid in, in caves, they hid in holes in the ground, they hid in wells and amongst the rocks. And at this time, the Israelite army dwindled down to about 600 men. That's all that Saul had. And why did it dwindle? Because the Israelite army looked out and they saw the storm, but they forgot the stories. They saw the storm, but they forgot the stories. But Jonathan was built different. Jonathan remembered. Jonathan remembered the stories of all that God had done, all the times that he had rescued Israel when Israel had no business winning a battle and they still won. Jonathan didn't just remember how uh, he had worked through Israel, but he remembered how he had worked through him. He remembered all the ways that God had proven himself faithful to him personally. And so instead of Jonathan being caught up and captivated by the storm, he remembered the stories. And it motivated him to challenge the Philistines. Now, it was at this moment that Jonathan went to his armor bearer and he said, I think we need to go to the other side because I think it's possible that God will deliver the Philistines into our hands. It's just the two of them. He and his armor bearer. He said, I think maybe me and you, me and it was like, well, what about it? No, I think maybe just me and you, we go to the other side and maybe, and I know 30,000 chariots, 6,000 troops that number the sea. It's possible that God, if we just do that, that God will deliver them into our, into our hands. Now, here's the thing I want you to see. At this point, Jonathan didn't consult Saul. Because had he went to Saul and said, hey, do you think it's a good idea to do this? Saul would have said, no, it's a bad idea. And he didn't go to like the military strategist, the great military strategist in the Israelite army and say, hey, do you think that this would be uh, a good plan for us to do this? Because no, I mean, strategically, this whole thing looks like suicide. Like it doesn't make sense for him to do it. But something in Jonathan wouldn't let it go. And Jonathan had trained himself to hear that voice inside the voice of God louder than he heard the crowds. One might say, Jonathan remembered the stories, and he recognized the voice. Isn't that convenient? I mean, that works out pretty good, right? Now, to get to the Philistines was no easy task. So in the book of Isaiah, I think it's Isaiah chapter 10, Isaiah describes one pass. Uh, so uh, Israel is stationed in Gibeah. The Israelite army is in Gibeah and the Philistine army is in Michmash. And the distance between these two places is only about three miles. And so three miles, really, when I say three miles, that don't sound too far, especially for two massive armies to, to uh, be apart from each other. But the terrain here was extremely treacherous. 
I mean, like, it was rocky, it was dangerous. And in the book of Isaiah, Isaiah in chapter 10 mentions, like, one pass. There was basically one way, one trail that people most often took to get from Gibeah uh, to Michmash. But as it turned out, the Philistines occupied that pass. So for Jonathan and for his armor bearer to get to Michmash, to get to the Philistines, they were going to have to get creative in their method and in their ways. And Jonathan, if the idea of going to the Philistines alone wasn't hard enough, Jonathan chose the most difficult way. He chose the most difficult path. And the way we know that is because the Bible in the story, hopefully you heard it, mentions two particular rocky crags that Jonathan and his armor bearer would have to ascend and descend to get to the other side. Now, I think the idea, I think in Jonathan's head, he's thinking, we're going to go away that they would never expect us to go. That way we'll pop up. They'll never expect us to have come from that direction. But at the same time, he makes that three-mile journey that he's about to take with his buddy, the armor bearer, exceptionally difficult. The Bible names these two rock crags. The first one, it refers to as Bozes. And the second, it calls Sina, like John. Y'all still... That's for you, Langston, if you're watching at home. And the reason he calls the first one Bozes, the first one is like right at the Israelite camp. It's like basically at the beginning of the journey. And it's called Bozes because it, this rock crag faces the sun. And so the sun just directly hits it all the time. So pretty much any time of day you look at that rock, it shines. And so Bozes in Hebrew means shiny. So they named that rock crag the shiny, the shiny rock. And then the other rock crag, the other rock crag called Sina, which is on the other side, much closer. Like Sina is going to be the crag that they have to cross right when they get to where the Philistines are. It was named Sina, and in Hebrew, Sina means thorny. Thorny. And the reason it was called Sina is because uh, this rock crag was covered in acacia bushes. Is that how you say that word? Is that right? And acacia bushes are oftentimes covered in thorns. Now, this is what I want you to see, church. I know that's been a bit academic, but for me, this is super important. And it shows this discussion. Bozes and Sina shows the brilliance of the Bible and its authors. Are y'all ready? This means yes. This means no. All right, hopefully at least somebody online is ready. All right. For Jonathan to complete his call, for he and the armor bearer to complete their mission, for them to live according to God's plan and God's purpose, it was going to mean that they had to walk past some shiny things and walk through some painful things. Are you with me? Like, for them to complete the task, man, the author, hey, listen, there aren't a whole lot of rocks that are named in the Bible. So when they give you the names of the rocks, Bozes and Sina, they're trying to tell you something. And what they're trying to tell you here is the things that shine are meant to represent our pleasure, and the Bozes is meant to represent our pleasure, and Sina is meant to represent our pain. And what the author is trying to tell you is if you ever want to make like the three-mile journey to complete your task, to complete your call, to complete your goal, you're going to have to go through those same obstacles. Like at first... Satan is going to try to hit you with shiny things to divert your attention from the path. And then if that doesn't work, he will hit you with pain to try to knock you off your course. 
And it's not just Jonathan that had to experience Bozes and Sina. And it's not just us that I think has to experience Bozes and Sina. I want you to think for a minute about how this story whispers the name of Jesus. At the very outset of Jesus' mission, his journey, when he just started his ministry, first thing he did, he headed to the wilderness. He headed to the desert. And there, Satan came, and he was tempted. And what did Satan tempt him with? He tempted him with shiny things. He essentially says to Jesus, hey, I'll give you whatever you want. You can have, you can have it all if you'll just bow down to me for Jesus. That was his bozes. That was right at the beginning of his journey. Then, the end of his story, right before Jesus goes to the cross to endure the most painful moment that experience that anybody has had, crown of thorns, thorns placed on his head, piercing his skull. At the beginning of Jesus' journey, Satan tries to tempt him, hey, come for these shiny things. Come, no, you don't, don't take that path. Come with me on this path. Jesus doesn't budge. At the end of Jesus' journey, it's whips, it's a cat of nine tails, it's a literal crown of thorns, it's nails in his hand. Satan tries to knock him off the course with his pain. But for Jesus to complete the task that God sent him to earth to complete, he had to go through Bozes and he had to go through Cena. And what to me is crazy about it is Bozes, Bozes is the, the pleasure is the first thing. It's at the beginning of the story. And Satan thinks if the pleasure doesn't get you, the pain will. Now, this isn't, it's not in my notes, but it's something I want to talk about. I just want to give you an example of how I think this could work in a lot of people's lives, okay? I think there are a lot of people who are like in their 20s, and they're really not sure. I wasn't. They're really not sure what God wants for them, what God has in store for them. They're trying to discern what his call on their, their life is. And in the midst of those years, a lot of people end up buying really nice cars that they don't necessarily need, really, really large houses that are a little too much for them. And if you're like me, they end up taking tens of thousands of dollars out in student loans. Now, what happens is you make that decision in your 20s, and then you get into your 30s and your 40s, and you begin to be able to see a little bit more clearly. And you begin to be able to hear the call of God on your life a little more clearly. You begin to have a sense of what it is that you feel like you're supposed to do. But guess what? You can't do it because you find yourself handcuffed by the decisions you made 15 years ago. You're still trying to pay off loans that you took out 15 years before that moment. Church, you can't tell me that doesn't happen to a lot of folks. It breaks my heart to think how many people aren't on the mission field because they have to stay in the States and pay off their student loans. Satan will tempt you. Like often at the very beginning of your, of your journey, he's going to attempt you. He's going to tempt you with things that shine. And then again, if that doesn't work, Think about how many people you know in your life, and as a pastor I've seen it over and over again, who follow Jesus, who walk down the path he's called them down until they experience some sort of pain, until the first hint of pain strikes, until they lose somebody that they love. Somebody they love gets cancer. Somebody, they, they themselves get sick. It can be something big or it can be something as simple. Somebody at the church hurts them. But, but something happens and pain often knocks people immediately right off the path. What I'm trying to say to you this morning, church, is 
I believe God has a plan for all of your lives, a purpose, and a call. But to achieve it, you're going to have to remember the stories, recognize the voice, and you're going to have to walk through Bozes and Cena. You're going to have to push past the pleasure, the shiny thing, and push past the pain, the thorny thing. Now, Jonathan and the armor bearer end up making it to the other side by some miracle of God. Most people think they traveled at night, which to me is crazy, so as not to be seen. So they're climbing these rock faces and descending these rock faces in the middle of the night. And you can still see these places. Like if you look them up online, you can see what these places look like. But they make it to the other side, and on the journey they agree. Look, if we get to the other side, and if when we get there, the Philistines tell us to come out to them, then we're going to take that as a sign that God has given them into our hands. Like if they come to us, that's not the sign. But if they call for us to come out to them, that is the sign and we believe that, that we'll win then. And so sure enough, they get to the other side, the Philistines call for them to come out and to show themselves, and so they know they're going to win. And so they come out, and they immediately, two guys, Jonathan, his armor bearer, get into a battle, they kill 20 Philistine soldiers. When they kill these soldiers, it sends disarray through the whole camp, chaos through the whole Philistine camp. They immediately begin to fight amongst themselves, and they start killing each other. And the Israelites and Saul hear what's going on. They find out what's happening, and they join in the battle. And not only do they join in the battle, but the, the soldiers who had hidden like out in the, in the rocks and the holes and the caves, they start popping out everywhere. And ultimately, in that moment, they rise up, and God leads and led Israelite to a great victory again on that day, all because of Jonathan's faithfulness and the faithfulness of the armor bearer. Now, I have two more things I want to say about this story. I'm going to say them really fast, and then I'm done. Here's the first one. The armor bearer might be the coolest person in this story. If you read the story, the armor bearer might be the coolest person in the story. And the reason he might be the coolest person in the story is because Jonathan just gives him this ridiculous idea. He's like, I think me and you, there's like 100,000 of them. I think me and you may be supposed to go over to the other side. God might give them into, into our hands. And the armor bearer just says to, back to Jonathan, your heart is my heart. You want to go? I'm in. Now, I don't know about you all, but I need more friends like that in my life. And not only do I need more friends like that in my life, I need to become more like that. I mean, there are a lot of people like in your, in your circle of life, there are a lot of people who have dreams, who have visions, who God has called them to do something, and they're just waiting on somebody to come alongside them and affirm them and say, this is it. Let's go. I'll help you. And they go, well, are you feeling that same stirring? And he's like, no, I don't feel the same, but I believe in you. And if you feel it, then I'm in. Let's go. Second thing I want you to see in this story is that once Jonathan and the armor bearer began to live out their call, once they began to live out their purpose, once they went to challenge the Philistines, that's when all the people started popping up out of the holes and coming back out and living according to their purpose and living according to their call. And what I want to say to you this morning is this. There are people in your circles who are waiting to see you live out your purpose and your call so that they might live out their purpose and their call. There are some people in your circles who are waiting for you to show them what God is capable of. And once they see you take those steps of faith, once they see you live on mission, don't be surprised when the people start popping up out of the holes and you start seeing more people around you living in obedience, church, God has a plan and a purpose for all of your lives. Remember the stories. Recognize the voice. Push 
Close your eyes as you walk through Bozes, and then push hard through the pain in Cena. And that's where victory is won. That's where purpose is found. Pray with me. Father, we come to you in the name of Jesus. God, I'm grateful for these stories. I really am. I mean, I look back at these stories, and I just, I hope that when we talk about these, that it's not just sentiment. I mean, I want them to get into people's depths. I want people to fill them in their souls. And I want people, when they find themselves in moments of desperation, when they find themselves in storms, I want them to remember all that you've done and all that you're capable of doing. God, every person in here you made on purpose and you made for a purpose. And I pray that they would feel that right now. You made them on purpose and for a purpose. The lackadaisical, lazy Christian life that many of them have been living up to this point, I pray that somebody in the room would say, I'm not doing that anymore. I'm going to lay that down. It's time for me to live according to my call. And even if I lose some friends in the process, I'm going to lose some friends. And even if things don't break my way, they're not going to break my way, but I'm still going to be faithful to the things that God has called me to do. God, I'm so grateful for the Holy Spirit and the way that you move in our lives and hearts and the way that you speak to us and give direction. I pray that you'd speak loudly. May the people of Whitestone be a people who have a faith that remembers and not a faith that forgets. We love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.